Chapter Six of Dr. Paul's Theory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dr. Paul's Theory by Alice Mangold Deal. Chapter Six. The Locket. Where is Mr. Pym? asked Hugh, meeting James in the hall. Captain Pym is gone, sir. Rode off in a hurry about half an hour since. If you mean the old gentleman, he's in the library with Mr. Mervyn. Sir Roderick's brother was evidently unknown to and of little account in Sir Roderick's household. Hugh felt that his first duty was to show every deference to a man who had been, whether justifiably or not, cruelly insulted by the dying man he knocked at the library door it was mr mervyn who called out come in the fitful sunshine and the leaping flames on the old-fashioned hearth were brightening the room mr pym had unwittingly seated himself in sir roderick's own particular armchair mr mervyn stood on the hearthrug that's right paul he said evidently relieved she is better had a good cry she'll do then mr pym and i have had a talk and i am glad you should understand each other before he returns home i have assured him in your behalf that sir roderick's wishes on the subject of yourself and lilia were more of a surprise to you than to myself i am not a thief mr mervyn said hugh warmly if coming here as sir roderick's medical attendant i had even thought of miss pym as a possible future wife i should have been as much a thief as a common burglar ay more so mr pym's long upper lip curved a little with more a sneer than a smile these young men nowadays are so strangely romantic he said turning to mr mervyn it has i assure you been a great difficulty in my way in the matter of my clerks my partner mr clitheroe invariably defers to me in the affair of our staff this tendency has been a great stumbling-block to me i will not have a person in my employ who uses tall talk hugh bit his lip but remembered that this man who wished to show him that he classed him with his bank clerks with the despised majority the bread-winning non-capitalists was not only Lilia's uncle, but possibly his sister Daisy's father-in-law. "'I have assured Mr. Pym that Lilia also was more surprised than I was,' said Mr. Mervyn, admiring Hugh's self-control, for Mr. Pym's cold, measured tones were far more subtly insulting than his words. "'This I have learnt from Mrs. Mervyn, who at the same time assured me that the child had a great regard for you, Paul.' quite sufficient to render her obedient to her father's wishes when called upon that is all very well mr mervyn said mr pym dictatorially but as you are aware until quite lately my unfortunate brother's pet whim was to leave his fortune to roderick on the condition that he and my niece would marry of that sir i know nothing said mr mervyn deferentially but you were always in the house i understand said mr pym haughtily my brother's almost adoption of my son cannot have escaped your notice mr mervyn cleared his throat and looking down at his boots 
brushed some invisible dust from the skirt of his coat i have known sir roderick change his mind before now that is all i can say mr pym he said yes when he had a mind to change said the banker the question is if the accident which brought about concussion of the brain did not so seriously affect his mind as to invalidate his opinions from that moment hugh was about to speak but mr mervyn silenced him with a warning glance it may be treason to my dead friend i don't know i certainly hope not he said but if there is to be discussion or law-making on the subject of his fortune i must tell the truth he had no particular fortune to leave hugh felt as if a heavy weight were uplifted from his heart thank god for that he said the exclamation was so undoubtedly genuine that mr mervyn smiled almost laughed but recollecting the dread presence in the house checked himself mr pym settled his eyeglasses on his nose looked curiously at hugh as at some new specimen of unclassed animal then dropped his glasses excuse me if i think you are mistaken mr mervyn he said politely my brother can scarcely have dissipated so large a capital as that which he withdrew from us when we dissolved partnership mr mervyn shrugged his shoulders the reading of the will will doubtless tend to explain matters he said at present we are even in the dark as to sir roderick's wishes in regard to his burial a minute's silence then mr pym rose understand mr mervyn he said stiffly and pompously and with evident intention turning his back upon hugh until i as her nearest male relative have had several interviews with my niece i cannot countenance any arrangement for her future which may have been made by my unfortunate brother when in an unsound state of mind hugh's impulse to resent was suddenly and strongly quelled by a strange almost occult sensation he seemed as it were suddenly to feel personally the emotions that old mr pym was enduring these were goodwill towards the brother who had persistently misunderstood and quarrelled with him an almost despair at that death-bed insult an irritable questioning of the motives and intentions of himself and mr mervyn strangers except by hearsay a yearning tenderness towards his orphaned niece mr pym he said impetuously going to the old man as he was quitting the room excuse me for detaining you one moment but i must tell you how much your niece's grief is increased by her father's treatment of you it was harder to console her for that than for the fact that sir roderick is dead at first a slight redness flushing mr pym's withered cheeks encouraged hugh to fancy that his feelings were touched but whatever transient emotion had caused that flush it was but transient i am sure i am very much obliged to you he coldly said with a nod such as he might have given to a saluting servant but really i do not think that you sir and i need go into these questions if you will direct me to the stables i will find my carriage mr mervyn at once came to the rescue you wait here for me 
he said confidentially to Hugh. I'll see him off and come back. Hugh's sensations when left alone were scarcely pleasant. I am an interloper, he thought. Yet I love her, and if I were to wriggle out of the situation, Roderick would step in. Roderick! No! I must deal with the facts as they are, the best way I can. At least, he thought, as Mr. Mervyn cordially held out his hand to him as he returned to the room, Lilia's guardian and trustee did not misunderstand him. It is a sad time for congratulations, said Mr. Mervyn. Still, I cannot help congratulating you. Lilia is a sweet girl, with the making of a real woman in her. I was right when I said that Sir Roderick's wish you two should be married took you by surprise, eh? It was more than a surprise, Mr. Mervyn. Not an unpleasant one? No, I thought not. Mrs. Mervyn assured me that you and Lilia liked each other weeks ago. Women are pretty reliable judges in these matters. Still, when Sir Roderick told me at the beginning of this last illness that he had invited you here, hoping that the child would take a fancy to you, I was surprised, I own. What could his idea have been, Mr. Mervyn? He liked you. When Sir Roderick liked any one, he trusted that person blindly, I may say foolishly. Then he had just been disenchanted, awakened to the fact that his nephew Roderick is, what I have always thought him, a scamp. How was he enlightened? asked Hugh, drawing a long breath of relief. Oh, you know how curiously things get about. He was not a man to listen to gossip. But since the 45th were quartered at Aldershot, rumours of Roderick's looseness of conduct were in the air somehow. Do you think he intended those two for each other? asked Hugh. I cannot make out, said the clergyman, slowly. He made a fool of that lad, sometimes so much so that I felt uncomfortable, as if it were unreal, a cruel joke he was enjoying all to himself. You see, he hated the father. I thought so, said Hugh. Then he detailed the bitter speeches of the dying man before Mr. Mervyn was fetched by Lilia. Dear, dear, said Mr. Mervyn, it is not to be wondered at that the old man's back was up just now. Curious old man, that. A bit of a Pharisee, I fear, but not as guilty as his brother thought him, I believe. Were you here then, Mr. Mervyn, when that affair of Lady Pym happened? Who told you of the family scandal, eh, young man? Hugh recounted his father's visit and its object. Do you know anything of this clergyman's son who wants to marry my sister? he asked. I met him once or twice, and thought him a prig, said Mr. Mervyn, but better a prig than like his brother Roderick. You knew Lady Pym? asked Hugh. I did, said Mr. Mervyn. A lovely, winsome young creature, wretchedly unhappy. She was made for society and a lightsome life, and Sir Roderick literally imprisoned her. If she clung to her brother-in-law, if they were more affectionate to each other than in strict justice to him they should have been, I, for one, cannot cast the first stone. It was piteous to see that poor girl. When the row came, and she disappeared, I felt inclined to give up the living. My one attempt to interfere was met with coldness. I could not try again. If it had not been for my wife, 
who was devoted to the poor baby and literally went on her knees to me to stay i should not be here talking to you now it is this with other things that makes it impossible for me to regret sir roderick's death though he has been very kind to me and to my wife too and to the poor no said mr mervyn energetically he has been their worst enemy your work is cut out for you mr paul to undo his doings but you were the man to do it but i thought you said he left no fortune hugh's ambition was certainly not to waste his energies in remedying sir roderick's mistakes no fortune as mr pym considers fortune but you had better see turner and moffat the solicitors paul you really had added mr mervyn lapsing into the familiar and confidential some one must take up a position of authority and you are the person to do it as matters stand hugh wrote off to the hospital authorities for further leave and next day hearing from mrs mervyn who was acting as mistress of the house pro tempore that lilia would not come down till after luncheon he drove over to the quiet little town where messrs turner and moffat solicitors was engraved large upon a brilliant brass plate on the door of an old red brick house this house was in a wide quiet street of the silent country town where the grass sprouted about the cobbles and the roads a parlour-maid conducted hugh into a prim library where he was almost immediately joined by a little man dressed with extreme neatness and wearing thick glass spectacles who met him with repeated little bows a friend of my late client he said insisting upon hugh seating himself in a huge armchair like a dentist's yes yes he referred to hugh's card that he was holding between his finger and thumb my name is moffat i have always acted for sir roderick dear me very sad very sad i only heard of his death this morning he sat down and looked at hugh through his spectacles with an inquiring owl-like gaze i have good reason to suppose that my client has spoken of you to me as having treated him very successfully after his accident he next said taking off his spectacles and absently polishing them with his handkerchief quite in a friendly way sir roderick was very friendly with us indeed he has often honoured mrs moffat by taking a bit of luncheon with us and how is the poor young lady to hugh's surprise he found that mr moffat had never seen lilia our poor friend my late client i should say was slightly eccentric you see said the lawyer exculpatingly after which hugh found it easier to make a clean breast of affairs as they stood mr mervyn advised me to come to you to tell me exactly what to do he said certainly certainly mr paul anything that we can do the little gentleman who had been mentally casting up hugh of whose position in sir roderick's will he was well aware was so far satisfied with his new client the reluctance hugh showed during their ensuing interview to accept a situation he thought foolish still he liked the young man for it hugh left him in a more uncertain mood than when he sought him he did not see lilia till next morning mrs mervyn was kind even tender in her manner to him when they dined tete-a-tete but they both tacitly ignored the position of affairs 
mrs mervyn recalled and recounted little anecdotes which showed sir roderick at his best but nothing further was discussed even on the subject of lilia they were equally on guard this is the most uncomfortable position a man could possibly be placed in hugh told himself as he breakfasted alone in the dining-room next morning stared at by the painted eyes of the pictured effigies of bygone pins why will she not see me for by mrs mervyn's message of excuse that she would breakfast upstairs with lilia he augured that lilia would not face him what am i to do he thought pacing the room in gloomy discomfort of course i see it i have been forced upon her as a loving daughter she was ready to sacrifice herself to please her dying father if he had asked to be burnt like an indian and she to lie down among the flames in sutee fashion she would have carried out his whim she shall not be made miserable for life i must insist upon her accepting her release of course the mervyns and lawyer moffat think it best that sir roderick's ideas should be carried out my duty plainly is to fight for her good and hers only while he was hotly arguing against himself lilia was hanging despairingly about mrs mervyn in her darkened room my dear i assure you he loves you and would have wished to marry you even against your father's wish mrs mervyn was assuring the unhappy girl for the hundredth time if you only see him you will be convinced that i am right you will indeed then lilia said brokenly that she could not if he would only go away she would write to him let him take everything and go she said for about the hundred and first time life is over for me then once more mrs mervyn said this time somewhat indignantly for she was losing patience that such a suggestion to mr paul savoured of insult you are cowardly in your grief lilia she said sharply at least tell the young man your ideas yourself instead of saying them over and over again to poor me who can do nothing perhaps it was this speech which brought about the following hugh impatiently pacing the dining-room did not hear the door open and when once he suddenly turned round as he reached the hearth-rug he started back in alarm at finding himself confronted by a ghostly figure it was lilia magdalen-like with her hair dishevelled and hanging about over her white dressing-gown with her head drooping her swollen eyelids cast down her arms crossed under her loose sleeves miss pym he said then he placed a chair for her and set a guard upon his emotions she sat down on the edge of the chair as if she were on sufferance indeed she felt as if nothing in the world was her own now except her grief what can i do for you he said as gently and tenderly as he could anything anything that you wish i will try to do she glanced up at this will you go she said timidly and forget all about us about him and me and i will write to you about everything her head drooped again he stood looking at her in silence for a few moments wondering what prompted that speech what indeed she really felt then he said very gently 
am i to understand that you really wish me to go she murmured yes i will then he said but you must give me your true reason for sending me away for your happiness she said with a sigh my happiness he repeated bitterly even though you may hate me because your father wished that i would rather stay near you even though you would not look at me or speak to me than go away now he hoped his earnestness might have some effect in eliciting the truth but she still sat there dumbly miserably after a pause you are very kind he used to say so she murmured with a sob he felt somewhat exasperated i am not kind he said and i never say anything i do not mean and feel don't you believe me really kind people do not know when they are kind she said raising her grieved eyes and speaking more firmly make no mistake mr paul i understand your motives which seem good to you but they are not the best or even good for you or for me i am positively certain of this my motives he said scornfully then i have none i only know that i love you he added passionately she fastened as if in perversity on the first half of his speech if you have no motives i have motives she said slowly therefore i am the one to see clearly and i plainly see that the best thing for both of us is that you should go away but why cried hugh in his life he had never felt more inclined to swear that is all i ask you to tell me why i gave you my reason she said for your happiness my happiness what do you know or care about my happiness he said scornfully more than you care for mine she said rousing a little or you would go without asking why no that i certainly should not he returned oh what a waste of time this beating about the bush is lilia i plainly see what all this means you cannot love me he began pacing the room again she poor child worn out by sleepless nights fighting against her inclinations as she thought for the welfare of this man whom she passionately loved gazed sadly at him a pathetic gaze of renunciation which if he had seen might have enlightened him but he did not see well he said at last almost fiercely halting opposite to her your answer i forget what you asked she said timidly that is answer enough he retorted sadly poor poor child you shall not be sacrificed love him and forget his question the two things were incompatible he was answered he considered and completely with a swelling heart she held out her limp cold hand to him be my brother 
she said with a catching at her breath remember how alone i am he stooped and lightly touched her hand with his lips if i were your brother i should stay he said gravely if you were my brother you would do as you like without asking me she said with an attempt at a smile do as you like at that moment there was a tap at the door and the older of the two nurses peeped in might i trouble you one moment mr paul he went outside the nurse handed him a small sealed packet a locket and chain from the patient's neck she said mrs mervyn would not take it i will give it to miss pym he said wondering how much or how little lilia knew of her father's personal affairs nurse came to bring me this he said returning to lilia she says it contains a locket and chain she found around his neck a locket round his neck it must be a mistake said lilia confidently he never wore any jewellery except of course his watch-chain he did not approve of men decking themselves out with ornaments well you can soon find out if it is a mistake he said handing her the packet she hesitated took the package then laid it down on the table as if the touch of it had scorched her i cannot she said with a sob it seems such prying such desecration you open it there was something so childish in her change of voice as she pushed the packet towards him that instinctively hugh felt comforted all the preceding palaver might have been partly the masquerading of a child suddenly called upon to act the woman for a moment he hesitated then he broke the seal and handing her the locket which had been in his custody at the hospital said i have seen this before i think you she asked recoiling how when in the hospital your father wore it then if i am not mistaken the locket contains a portrait i have never been photographed she said evidently believing that no portrait save of herself could be so honoured it is not a portrait of roderick look and see for yourself suggested hugh her fingers trembled as she opened the locket then she stared in amazement at the miniature i have never seen that person in my life she cried have you did he tell you anything about it oh it is impossible impossible she was roused almost excited she tossed the locket away from her then clutched at it again and devoured the portrait with her eyes surely the face must recall some one to your mind there must be some family likeness he suggested gravely i never saw any one in the least like that she said with withering contempt it is a horrid face could she speak thus if the slightest suspicion that the portrait was that of her unhappy mother had crossed her mind hugh thought not you once had a mother he said not without emotion that he a stranger should be called upon to remind this fatherless young creature of the fact i know it she said coldly 
please do not allude to that again what is to be done with this then he asked chilled by her unwomanliness and he picked up the locket and once more looked at the pretty defiant little face pictured therein i do not see what one thing has to do with the other she said i feel certain that this is the portrait of your mother he said and that being so what is to be done with it she glanced at him with a curious light in her grey eyes that made her look more witch-like than angelic i will show you she said and going to the hearth she stirred the logs into a blaze and detaching the locket from its slender chain she dropped it into the glowing heart of the fire i will keep this she said showing him the chain it touched his neck you are answered the horrified expression on hugh's pale features somewhat quieted her passion he was surprised and shocked was her rage pure jealousy or what he stood there pondering with his face averted from her now you know me she said recklessly no not quite but i will tell you i hate the woman who dared to marry my father without loving him and so poisoned his life and broke his heart somehow sir roderick as hugh had known him was scarcely to be recognised as a man with a poisoned life and a broken heart as you have given me a brother's privilege i shall use it and tell you the truth he said seriously to the young creature who was he could see all panting and as it were aflame with long repressed emotion you have no right to judge another whom you have neither seen nor known least of all in the case of your mother to whom you owe your life and my misery she said passionately if she had not spoiled his life he would have been a happy man he might be alive now this is a very one-sided way of arguing he said had your parents been happy together in the ordinary way they might have had a large family of troublesome sons and daughters who would have broken your father's heart as you call it a dozen times over she was a wretch a wretch said lilia in her passion she forgot her new shyness of hue she had seated herself on the corner of the table gracefully enough she was always graceful but she was swinging her little foot impatiently and thrust away the breakfast things not yet removed with evident carelessness whether they were broken or not did it ever occur to you that if we continue the mistakes those beloved dead of ours made here on earth we might possibly be injuring their souls said hugh gravely it seems to me that real grief for the dead should show itself in continuing the good they have done and perhaps in rectifying those mistakes my father never made mistakes said lilia obstinately he seems to have made one at least he said somewhat bitterly in thinking that you and i wished or would consent to marry each other she blushed and hung her head you were speaking of souls she said presently in a somewhat defiant tone what do you mean by souls you ought to know he returned do you not go to church every sunday and say your prayers i did so while he was here but never again never again 
she said in tones so despairing that hugh's growing hardness of humour was melted why not he asked gently i was getting to believe that there might be a good god she said that is crushed now i know there is not you do not know what you are saying poor child said hugh what was he to do what to say never in his life had he felt so helpless in thought and word she looked up at him with a sad but quiet little smile would you hard as you can be have taken my father from me she said i thought your mind was larger stronger said hugh eagerly that you could distinguish between this little life and eternity between our poor human ideas and the eternal must be i am disappointed she sighed i knew it she murmured twisting her fingers i knew that when you saw me as i really am you would despise me pray pray do not misunderstand me said hugh almost hopelessly it seems to me that all the trouble in life comes from people wilfully misunderstanding each other will you not believe in my devotion to you that i am ready to do to suffer anything for you i am not worth it she sighed and really it seems to me that i don't care whether i am or not or indeed what happens she was so listlessly miserable that hugh reassumed his professional manner she was suffering from the shock she required complete rest it never occurred to him that if he had taken her to his heart then and there without question or reserve that complete rest would have been hers instead he sent her upstairs to mrs mervyn devoutly kissing her hand at parting with the kind cool words remember you have a brother who is ready to serve you day or night so lilia went wearily up the old staircase and scared mrs mervyn who was scribbling notes at the writing-table in her room by looking more ghost-like than when she left her well said that lady who had quite concluded that the young people would understand each other well what she asked languidly mr paul said i had better lie down lie down indeed as if i could rest but you understand each other mrs mervyn asked with a shade of anxiety in her tone she felt her position somewhat onerous perfectly said lilia we are quite agreed we have adopted each other as brother and sister oh father father and she broke down completely sobbing hysterically for a long time when she was quieted and was seemingly asleep mrs mervyn had time to reflect what were those two about they are too much in love with each other and cannot talk sense that's what it is she told herself ah well time enough the brother and sister business is really nicer during the first morning when there should be no thoughts of marrying or giving in marriage End of chapter six